Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. How are you? Some of you are pretty lively. So uh, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're here on our campus or joining us online, we're just so thrilled that you are joining us today. Um, who wouldn't be afraid of Carol if she was your probationer? <laughs> Man, I would just think, they're trying to throw something at me I don't understand. If I, was, if I happened to be a criminal, I would definitely toe the line for you, Carol. You're like a secret weapon or something. So, hey, if you're just joining us, uh, uh, we're going through Luke. Uh, it's one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, and uh, we've been doing it in a special way. We're starting, we started at Christmas, and we're going to go all the way to Easter. So from the birth of Christ to the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, that's how we're going through. So if the passage that Carol read today, that's where we're going to center our thoughts in Luke 13. So if you have a Bible, open it. I'm going to be putting verses up on the screen, or if you're doing it on a device, you know, you can... Turn that on as well. And what you should know is this teaching that Jesus makes here, as brief as it is, about mustard seeds and yeast and the kingdom of God follows an interaction that uh, Jesus has with a synagogue leader. Jesus had healed a woman who Luke says was bent over forward and couldn't, couldn't stand up. Some people have speculated that she had something called kyphosis, which is like the, the, the curvature of the spine forward. <clears throat> and so Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. And just prior to this, um, the synagogue leader is indignant over this, and he rebukes Jesus in front of everybody. And he says, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. <clears throat> it's like the healing Nazi or something, you know. Um, the issue here, if you're not familiar with the synagogue leader, is that Jesus did work healing somebody on a day that is traditionally set aside for rest, which, I mean, here, you know, in 2022, we look at that, and it's like, that just seems to entirely miss the point, right? Which it does, and this, so this extreme adherence to uh, a tradition if you've been studying with us or you read your New Testament, you know this is a common point of conflict between Jesus and religious leaders. And so, I don't know about you, but I find myself often wondering, was this really the issue for them? I mean, doesn't common sense tell you, like, of course you could heal somebody on the Sabbath or pull a few uh, heads of grain off of in a field and eat them um, if you're hungry? Or was it really just, it just came down to that they didn't like Jesus? And so they just found ways to discredit him or to find ways to have confrontation with him. And in this case, it backfires on him. 
because uh, Jesus points out their hypocrisy in front of everybody, just as he's been rebuked publicly. And Luke says in verse 17 that they were humiliated by this. But the people, the audience there, were delighted with what he was doing. So you can see this tension building. And I tell you that background so that you have context to, to this particular teaching that Jesus gives here. It's the why behind what he's saying that Carol uh, read so well. And I think that we're going to spend some time understanding that, and then there's some things that we can bring forward in observations. But with that as a background to the context, there's really three things we need to grasp in order to understand what's happening here. Number one, we need to understand what is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to explain it with two simple things from everybody's life at that time. Mustard seeds and yeast. So we're going to go through that, and then we're going to bring all that forward, talk about like what, what, what does that mean for you and me today, living in this valley, if, you, if this is your home, and what it means to follow Jesus in this day and time. So first of all, let's talk about the kingdom of God. How many of you ever heard that phrase, or kingdom of heaven? And how many of you, like, sometimes you're a little foggy on what that might mean? Well, I raised my hand, so some of you just aren't participating. Um, but let's, let's just say that you were living in, in the first century, okay? And you're listening to Jesus teach. You're in that community, or you might even be following him. Um, what do you hear Jesus most talking about? What is he most often bringing up? Is it the golden rule? Is it love your neighbor or love your enemies? Is it like rebuke of the Pharisees or is it saying things like follow me? The answer is the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven 32 times in Luke alone and Matthew even more. So that's like 1.3 times per chapter. I did the math. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus talked about most, or kingdom of God. And the reason that's important is because everything else that we talk about is kind of based on that. We talk about um, loving our neighbor and loving our enemies or doing unto others as, as we would have them do to us or to not commit adultery or to practice radical forgiveness but none of those make sense unless you understand the kingdom of God. Um, without the kingdom, why, why would any of us do that? Why would any of us love our enemies unless there was some underlying reason for us to do so? And that's, that's why Jesus said that we must seek the kingdom of God first because everything else is based on that. And it's that teaching that ultimately causes all the conflict with the political leaders of Jesus' day and the religious leaders. See, they weren't in conflict with him because he said, you should love people, or that you should live a moral life, or, um, or even because he upset some of their traditions. The whole idea here is that what, what was upsetting to them is he's talking about the kingdom. And the question is, well, who, who's the king? And, and maybe, maybe you're like me, 
that's still the question that we're all asking. Many of you are professing Christians. It's the question, it's the ultimate question you and I have to answer. Some of you are exploring faith. And like I'm going to just tell you, spoiler alert, that that's the ultimate question that you'll have to answer. Like, who is the king? Because the kingdom of God describes God's reign over all. Um, a kingdom has to have a king, right? And kings reign. And we all get that. Another way to put it, it's like Jesus is the boss, right? We all, we all get that. But it's much bigger than that. So how, how do they hear it is the important thing. And we've talked about that often here, the how important context is to understanding what is being said in the Scripture. So what if, if you're there in the first century? If you are a Jewish fisherman like Peter, or you're a Roman ruler, a religious leader, how do you hear it? And I just want to like point you to a resource that's going to be much better than me. It, on the back of your note sheet, I've listed a, a YouTube video that you can find by Tim Mackey. You know, when in doubt, turn to Tim Mackey or Tim Keller. I'm thinking about changing my first name to Tim just so that I can be in that circle. But uh, it's fantastic, and it's accessible, and it's maybe a 45-minute video. But here's the cliff notes on the kingdom of God, so stay with me here. First of all, um, the idea of God as king is a com common biblical concept. Uh, in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. See the kingdom talk here or the kingdom language? And his kingdom rules over all. It's very common throughout your scripture, throughout the scriptures. But uh, as Tim points out in this video, um, where is the first time in the Bible that God is referred to as a king? It's in Exodus 15, 18. So we're going we're gonna to like kind of cruise through some of this so you can get some background. This is right after the Israelites have escaped Egypt from slavery. And Moses um, leads the nation in a, a song of praise for uh, the deliverance that God has given them. Again, they were under the rule of an evil king, the Pharaoh, and now they're under God's rule. With, with all the consequences and all the uncertainties of being in the wilderness, they're now under God's leadership. And in Exodus 15:1, Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver has he, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. They're just thrilled to be out from underneath this, this evil rule, this godless rule of the Pharaoh. And then in verse 18, as you go down, as it concludes, it says, The Lord reigns forever and ever. This is the first time that God is referred to as a king in the Bible. And so the, it's just the way that the construct in which they're thinking about God's rule in their lives. And then immediately, God gives them kind of like their constitution, their rules of living in his kingdom. It's called the Ten Commandments. So they, they have a king, they have a kingdom, and they have a way of living in that kingdom. And it's God's intention to show the world what it looks like for people to live under his rule. 
So another question is, where's the first time that the idea of a kingdom appears in the Bible, the idea of a kingdom? And that's right away in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. The creation story, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then he says, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here, from the very beginning, when God describes how he will work through human beings, he describes their, their job or their role is to rule. And so God is the kind of God that invites humanity into ruling his kingdom. To rule doesn't mean to waste it. To rule is, is not to go around and say to people, or to creatures, or to other created things, hey, I rule you, so I can do whatever I want to you or with you. This creation story shows how God creates order out of chaos, and then he says to the first human beings, join me in ruling well. And immediately in doing that, there's a challenge to God's rule. What happens? Serpent shows up, and he's the salty new guy in the garden. He's got a better idea. And so he's like, you know, why do we have to, why do you have to do that? You don't have to do that. That's dumb. I have a better idea. He said that you can rule. You, you're supposed to rule. So he uses God's own words against him. And he says, you don't have to listen to God. You rule. You're kings. So from the very beginning, of God's creation, there's a challenge to God's rule in the world, and it doesn't start, it doesn't end at the border of the garden. The story of humanity is a constant battle against God's reign. Human beings want to rule. We're designed to rule, but we want to rule under our own rules, right? We just want to rule on our own. What's the first word you learn to say? as a child. No. You learn to say no, right? Um, you get a little older, and then um, someone older than you is trying to boss you around, and what do you say? You're not the boss of me, <laughs> right? Then, then later, you're an adult, and you're a really important adult, and you're driving on the freeway. And because you're really important, you can just, like, do whatever you want, but there's a speed limit, and the police officer pulls you over for not following the rules, and what you're mad, right? I've heard stories of people like this. <laughs> you're mad that, you, that the police officer said you didn't follow the rules because, because they don't apply to you. And then, then you work somewhere. You're at a business or an organization. You, you don't own the business, but you work there, and, um, and the owner is telling you you have a job to do, and you're like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that. I can do it a different way. And then, you, then you buy a home, and where you buy a home, there's an association. <laughs> and they have rules, right? And then you say, no, I'll, I'll paint my house purple if I want to. 
You can't tell me what to do. Am I right about that? So if I've like annoyed you, you know, I just wanted to let you know you have an email outlet. It's bobsanti at sunridgechurch.org. <laughs> so send those. Now, I'm not saying that we, we bend a knee to every authority. Uh, obviously, all authority is accountable to God. But what I'm pointing out is even when we've agreed to an authority s- structure like the police and like our driving habits, um, we still want it our own way. So is, there, is it any wonder that we struggle with letting the king be the king? And, you know, this, this is a story of the Old Testament, too, because the Old Testament is, is about human beings in relationship to God over, you know, a number of centuries. And remember, how long after creation is it that um, the writer of Genesis says that uh, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. It's like just in a few chapters. Then, then God gathers people and he, 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 he makes them a nation. They, they are a kingdom called Israel. And his intent is to show who God is and what it's like to live under God's rule. And do they do it well? No, they rebel. And it isn't long after that they have a civil war in their own nation. They can't even cooperate between the North and the South uh, kingdoms. They can't even get along with each other. And in the the middle of that, the prophets are warning them. They're like, you you can't do this. You should listen to God, but they don't want to hear it. They just want to do what they want to do, right? Because they're like us. And even some of their leaders, their religious leaders, their prophets, the people who spoke for God, they're corrupt in this. They want to do it like they want to do it too. They want their way. And, and they, they either are uh, complicit in it or they're, they're under some fog as well about what it means to live under God's rule. And ultimately, uh, God says, okay, you know, before this period, before I brought you into your land, which was I've designed for you, and I called you to be my people, you were under the rule of an evil Pharaoh, and you didn't like it, so I brought you out of there, and I started over with you so that you could experience life under my rule, and you could show the world what that looks like. And, uh, but you don't seem to want to live that way now. So I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to put you under the rule of a godless king from Babylon, and he's going to come in and his armies, and he's going to take over everything. And so you're going to be right back to that. And in the middle of that, their prophets, the good prophets, are saying, don't do this. Turn. Turn back to God. Live under his rule. And they just say, well, I'd rather run it myself. But even then, God doesn't completely give up on them. And as Israel experiences the pain of, like, being brought into captivity under um, the rule of Babylon and Persia, God still speaks to them with words of hope. And those prophets comforted God's people with the promise that one is coming who will once again restore God's reign. 
like words like this from Isaiah in uh, 52.7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And if you're Jewish living in this time, in the, bring it forward to the first century, and you're under Roman oppression, all of your history is tied up in what the story I just told you about their desire to be a, a nation unto themselves under God's rule. And that's your glory days. That's the history of your people, and yet you're not there. And so that's the context that you live in day in and day out, looking, hoping, trusting that one day those prophets' words will come true, that once again you will be, one will come that will reestablish God's reign. And so you experience everything that happens in your world through that lens, and you just think, if, if God could just show up again and he could reestablish his reign, that would, that's what you long for. Then this young new rabbi comes on the scene. His name is Jesus. And Matthew's gospel in 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So he's announcing that the kingdom is coming. And immediately after that, he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which, are, which is the Constitution or the rules for living in this new kingdom that God is going to bring. Just as the Ten Commandments were to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, now the Sermon on the Mount, is, it's the new Ten Commandments. It's the new way to be a citizen in God's kingdom. And then Jesus is quoting all these passages from different prophets, and, like Isaiah, about the one who will come and restore God's rule. And in the midst of that, he says in Luke 4.21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That's what he's saying. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about a place somewhere that you go, but he's talking about something that is happening through him. And if you're Jewish in that first century, You've been living with that hope coming to fruition. And your parents and your grandparents and their, their, you know, all your ancestors, they've been talking about it and dreaming about it. And you've actually been praying it daily. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, it is here. So how does that kingdom come? Then Jesus poses the question, and that's, that's how he answers it with these two simple things from their lives. The kingdom of God comes like a mustard seed and yeast. What is that, Britt? I'm glad you asked. First of all, let's talk about mustard seeds. Let's put one up on the screen. There's a mustard seed. So what, what do you... Uh, how would you describe a mustard seed? Small, right? Okay. Um, and here's a mustard bush. 
in the Middle East. Um, how would you describe that? Unattractive. Unattractive, yeah. That looks like some of your landscaping that you don't have an association in. So, so it's large. So what's happened between the seed and the bush? Like growth, right? Um, so what's in between that time of seed and growth? It's, it's water and time and sun and nutrients from the soil. So hold that thought. Then there's yeast. So for thousands of years, people have been using yeast to make uh, bread, beer, and wine. So can we just take a moment and thank those people? <laughs> Let's have just a moment of silence and gratitude for bread, beer, and wine. And maybe butter. But unlike a mustard seed, I can't give you a picture of, of a yeast because um, it's so small. In fact, we would have to look in a microscope that would magnify it 17,000 times in order for you to see um, a yeast. And so like when you buy that typical packet of yeast at the grocery store, um, there's two and a quarter tables or teaspoons in there. And um, the internet tells me that there are 69 billion yeast critters in that packet. 69 billion. So uh, here's what yeast does to bread. So I'm, I have a video for you. Let's watch it. Mmm. Okay. That is beautiful. <laughs> so here's what yeast can do to wine if you leave it too long. Here's another video. Notice the canister bulging. He's running away, right? It's so beautiful. What a waste. <laughs> so what's going on with yeast? Well, if yeast is given sugar, which like from grapes and wine, or starch from flour or bread or grain and beer, it eats it consumes it. And everything that eats something does something else, right? It gets gas and it goes potty. <laughs> Don't look at your husband right now, ladies. So uh, when, when um, bread rises or bubbles come up in your mash, that's actually yeast flatulence. And yeast wants to protect its food, so it tries to make it unpalatable to other organisms, so it pees in its food. And that's alcohol. You guys okay? <laughs> so what, how would you describe that process that yeast has in flour or... Um, in, in juice. Would you say permeation? Yeah, because that's the right answer. Um, <laughs> which means it just spreads in it, right? It invades it. So obviously, Jesus isn't giving us a lesson on beverages and food. Right now, he's talking about the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, 
and how it comes. So here are the things that they're learning that I think we can learn about how the kingdom of God comes. And just it's a few quick observations, and then we're done, okay? How will the kingdom come? How does it come? The kingdom of God comes slowly and often imperceptibly in the moment. When you think about God working, like especially when you think about Bible stories, don't you think about like I'm in a really big way? Um, you know, like parting of the Red Sea, walls fall down, great fish swallows you, and you live so you can get the point, uh, the resurrection. But Jesus says that God's kingdom is taking over slowly, and many times it's imperceptible. In Luke 17, 20, we're going to get there eventually in our study, but the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. We get that in a big worldwide way, like the kingdom of God is here among us. But it's also true personally, individually. I mean, hasn't, hasn't there been a time in your life where like, you couldn't tell that God was working. But later you saw that he was. You, you might have even thought, like, well, he's not working. And you're waiting. But, like, later it becomes more obvious that he was there all the time. Slowly and imperceptibly sometimes working. And may, maybe you're in that phase right now. Maybe you're in some type of trauma or, you know, if you're a student, you're trying to figure out your independence uh, with your parents or you're trying to figure out what school to go to and you're waiting for God to open doors. Um, maybe, maybe you're having conflict in your marriage right now and, you, you know, it's like you're waiting for God to show up. And you can't see it. Or, I mean, we just look at our world today. And we think, what in the world is going on? By the way, I hope that all of you are praying for the dear people in Ukraine. I mean, I just can't even imagine what, what that is like right now for them. And so we, we sit back and we go, well, is God even acting. And what I think Jesus is saying here is that he is. And we, we have to trust that his kingdom is coming. It has come. And his will will be done. But in the meantime, we need to pray that it does. So what will the kingdom look like? If it comes imperceptibly and slowly, what does it look like? The kingdom of God comes through influence, not power. That's what we see coming out of this. You know, this is something that the Crusades missed. And modern versions of the Crusades miss as well. And if you think of all the ways that Jesus could illustrate how his kingdom, I mean, just think about that concept, the way Jesus could, the way he described, the image that he gave of his kingdom coming, he could have used military um, 
illustration. He could have talked about guerrilla warfare or overthrowing the Roman government. He could talk about the Pharisees who opposed him as the, you know, the power brokers, the way they tried to shame Jesus. And he could have just shamed them back. Or with all the public ridicule that they brought upon Jesus, Jesus could have brought the same kind of ridicule to them. And yet we see over and over what Jesus exemplifies is servanthood and peacemaking and sometimes even allowing abuse to happen. Um, he could have demanded his rights at any time. Uh, when, I, when I first became a Christian, our church used to sing this song about, uh, and one of the phrases in it was, he could have called 10,000 angels. Yeah, he could have. Is the kingdom of God fully present today? No. Ultimately, will it be? Yes. But until then, we plant seeds that sometimes we water or others do. And then we allow God's light to shine and to warm those seeds to allow them to be cultivated into growth. And we work the yeast of the gospel into our families and into our schools and our communities and into our government. And we don't just drop a blob of yeast and then forget it and leave it. We fold it over and over into our lives and to other people's lives with our hands often and with our words. And we influence people toward God by uh, what we say, how we say it, and how we live. And do I have to point out the disasters that ensue that if we don't follow that plan, like wine shooting out of a drum, you know, that's, that wasn't good. So if we, if we utilize, if we leverage power in a way that God didn't intend, or we ridicule, or we shame, or we use vengeful and abusive words back, or we accommodate those who do, we will not bring the kingdom of God. We will definitely bring a kingdom, but you could argue in the end, was it the kingdom of God that we brought? Instead, we have to allow the kingdom to have time, time to come, for, for God to do his work in the people around us and in the situations that we face. Seeds are sown with our lives and leaven is introduced to our relationships and then it's up to God. And all along the way, we can't force somebody into it. We're like farmers or bakers or winemakers. So through what agency does the kingdom of God come? Who, who brings the kingdom to the world today? The kingdom of God comes from or comes through the cooperative work of God's people. There's a teamwork aspect to this that I want you to see. See, mustard seed, uh, mustard trees don't fill the landscape with mustard trees, with just one seed. It takes many seeds. And there, as I've said, there are billions and billions of yeast cells, organisms, critters, in one loaf of bread. 
Um, sometimes I'll refer to like this one volume commentary uh, by um, Matthew Henry. He was born in 1662. So this is, this is how old this statement is. And I want you to see it in light of what we're talking about. He says, I'll put the words up here. Yeah, they're there. Uh, the kingdom of the Messiah is the kingdom of God. May grace grow in our hearts. May our faith and love grow exceedingly so as to give undoubted evidence of their reality. May the example of God's saints be blessed to those among whom they live, and may his grace flow from heart to heart until the little one becomes a thousand. You know, we often hear at Sunday to talk about the church being like a family, and we, we don't just mean that as a warm and fuzzy thing. It's a way of living and working and cooperating with one another. And I don't, like, those of you that are more in my generation, you, you'll track with this better, but the older your family grows, the harder it is to find things that you can do together. So just take vacation as an example. You know, when it's just you, when you're just a couple, if you're married, you decide to go on vacation, you just go on vacation, right? You just go do what you're going to do. And then when you have little kids, you still do the same thing because they're going on vacation with you. So you just tell them, we're going on vacation. They're like, okay. And they get in the back of the car and you just tell them, don't fight on the way. And then like, and we're on vacation. But as your kids grow older, as your family grows, it becomes more and more difficult to find how to have vacation together because you have this wide variety of ages and interests and all people that started under the same roof, but like it just, it becomes more difficult to schedule it, of interest, everything that goes with, with it. And so one thing that I've learned or am learning is the older my family gets, the more cooperation it takes for us um, to do life together. There's a lot of give and take. So to be a family is, is not just to do your own thing. That's what I'm saying. And that can be difficult. And I think that in this day and time, the church needs a really strong rebuke. I'm not saying you specifically may include some of us here, but like in general, the church needs, you know, uh, I had a buddy that used to tell me, you know, like how do you deliver discipline? Uh, you know, it's either an arm around the shoulder or a kick in the pants. And um, I think we need a kick right now with all the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. Um, as long as people in churches continue to fight for their own personal agenda, the church will not see the kingdom come. As long as we spend our energy and the, the power of our minds and our influence and our discretionary resources on anything less than planting seeds, and pervading, the pervading influence of the gospel, we will deny or delay the coming of the kingdom because we are designed to be working alongside one another as different as we are, as different as our churches are, to bring God's reign to the world. And we're meant to do it the way God designed it to be done.
The yeast has to work all the way through the dough. And it just takes time. And it takes constant infusion of what God is doing in the world. I'm going to wrap up by inviting the band up and then um, going back to where I started. Um, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, some of you might be asking that question. But I think it should be asked of every Christian. Every Christian, even if you, you know yourself to be a Christian right now, I want you to ask yourself this question. What does it mean to be a Christian today? Does it mean that I prayed a certain prayer or filled out a card? Does it mean that I hold a certain doctrinal position that makes me more of a Christian than someone else? Does it mean that I'm conservative or liberal or capitalist or socialist? What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is someone who is under the rule of God. And so um, if you're not a Christian, I just want to let you know that you know, becoming a Christian means to rethink life, to rethink our orientation about how the world is. And it is to bring our lives and our minds and our hearts under the reign of God. And then for those of us who, who are Christians, you know, it's a good reminder today that the number one thing on Jesus' mind was the kingdom of God coming. And that we, we do this together for his sake. And if we do that, if we live with that perspective, if we plant our seeds and work the yeast into the spaces that God gives us, his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Will you join me in worship? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.